to do so, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Acts. And we are going to invite you this morning to turn to Acts chapter 18. Those of you who are regularly here, you're like, what happened to chapter 16 and 17? Uh, We're going to leap ahead. I'll explain that a little bit later. But we're going to read out of chapter 18. We're getting ready in verse, excuse me, 1, and uh, we'll read through verse 17. Now I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, After these things God departed from Athens and went to Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Galileo was proconsul of Archea, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If there were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, There would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Jews took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Well, as usual, I am behind schedule on my preaching calendar. I don't know why I keep it hardly anymore. I was hoping to be um, at the end of chapter 16 of Acts, or chapter 17, I'm sorry, of Acts, instead of a chapter earlier. Um, My hope was to uh, be delving into the events uh, in Athens, and specifically Paul's sermon on the uh, Mars Hill, Uh, And we will go there next week. I'm going to jump ahead, which is very unusual for me to skip a passage to get there. Um, It is going to be uh, the Easter sermon for our Orthodox Easter celebration next week. Um, But we want to build a bridge today to that passage. I'm not going to totally skip over the balance of chapter 17. We've already read some of chapter 18 because it has to do with the content of helping us build that bridge uh, theologically, to the end discussion of Mars Hill, which was, um, is there a resurrection? And uh, that was the great question. That was the, the one attribute of Paul's message 
that uh, brought uh, the time of decision upon the philosophers of Athens and Mars Hill was dealing with the idea, the, the, in their mind, the fantasy that a man raised from the dead. And it was at that point that there was a division among them that they were either tired of hearing the message or they were interested in hearing a lot more about the message and for just a handful of people, they believed the message. And I think that is very indicative of our culture today. Uh, and perhaps of most of our churches this morning as we consider the message of a resurrected Savior. And we're going to be looking at that more fully next week when we get into um, that passage there in chapter 17. But I want to build a bridge there today um, from where we have been studying in chapter 16 of Acts and what will come afterwards in chapter 18 of Acts to understand uh, why men have a choice. Why do the men of Athens have this choice to respond to the resurrection? Why today are men confronted with this opportunity to either accept or reject the powerful message of Christianity, one that will not ever be enforced upon you, at least not successfully? <laughs> there have been attempts, we're going to talk about those a little bit, of attempts in, in the past where men have tried to force the message of Christ on others, uh, and it has been disastrous and would still be today. Uh, for it is certain that Christ himself did not do that, but rather uh, confronted men with a message and then laid it upon them to choose. And that is what we really want to study today, is the fact that it is your responsibility to choose. It is also your privilege that God has afforded you and that many within Christian circles have sought to undermine. Even though it is evident throughout our study of Acts and even though uh, it is replete in many clear passages of Scripture, they have sought to take a handful of Scriptures and misapply them and, and basically take away the will of man, within the salvific process. But the fact is, is that today you're going to be confronted with a message that you must either choose to accept or reject. And I'll defend your, that aspect of our faith um, as far as I need to go. Um, let all men uh, be liars and God be telling the truth. And so today we're going to build a bridge from what we have seen here in Philippi, specifically in Acts chapter 16, and we're going to build that bridge over to Athens, and we're going to see it carry on into chapter 18 of Acts, that we might uh, gain the theological framework for the decision that each of us must make about whether to really accept or reject this idea that someone was raised from the dead and is living today as mediator between God and man. Before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity to open your word. And Lord, we uh, rejoice in your spirit's presence that would uh, illuminate it to us. We pray for his work to be unimpeded this day. We know that which would 
keep him, uh, that would, would restrict him, and that would be our uh, unbelief. And we pray that we might have a willing minds and hearts to hear and to see your truth and to respond by faith believing. And Lord, we rejoice in the clearness of your word. And we pray that uh, we might lay hold of it, not only mentally with uh, intellectual assent, but that we might in our hearts grasp hold of it and allow the authority that it commands to change our lives. We again recognize our dependence upon you in that respect as well. And so we do pray that you might uh, work in this hour, that you might guard what is said, that it might be uh, according to your word, that it might be uh, free from the ideas and philosophies of this world or of this man. There might be truly your word from your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come into a study of the missionary enterprises of Paul and Silas at this point. Paul and Barnabas have, have decided to split up um, because of disagreement uh, over John Mark. Paul uh, receives Silas as his ministry companion, partner, which will continue throughout his missionary journeys. Uh, he then picks up Titus, I'm sorry, not Titus, Timothy, um, and also, we have found that uh, somewhere along the way, he picked up while they were waiting for God to direct them somewhere for ministry, he was trying to go to places and Spirit closed off doors uh, that wouldn't allow him to go in and minister in certain areas because he wanted them directed in one way. While they were waiting, uh, another gentleman is picked up by this uh, evangelism group, and that is Luke, the author of the book of Acts. And so now we have these four men, at least, uh, possibly Titus is going to be joining them very soon, uh, if not en route. But we find that uh, they are now uh, heading over to Macedonia based upon God's uh, giving Paul a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. They arrive there, and we can understand why Paul was reticent to go there. They go immediately to the principal city of the region, which is Philippi, and they can't do what he does everywhere else. Everywhere else, he goes to the synagogue. He can't do it in Philippi because there isn't one. And so he's going to return to that custom very, very soon. As soon as he gets out of Philippi, he's going to head into some of the other regional cities uh, of Macedonia. And, the, and we're going to go back to the custom of going to the Jews first, going to the synagogues. And he's going to do that in Thessalonica. He's going to do that in Berea. And he's even going to do that in Corinth. And Corinth is where it really just he pulls his hair out. We already read that a little bit today. And we're going to see some correlations there. But we find that he can't go to the synagogue, and so um, after making some inquiries, apparently, he uh, finds out that there is a group of women who are outside the city who are uh, apparently either Jews or Jewesses or proselytes, um, or widows, or uh, more than likely, and uh, who are praying by the river to this Jewish God. And Paul goes out, and Silas goes out and joins them. Uh, and they encounter one Lydia, uh, who is likely a proselyte. She's from Thyatira. Um, she is probably, well, we, 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 again, a lot of that is conjecture. Um, and we find that she is responsive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and spend some time there. Of course, so we then saw Paul and Silas uh, jailed. And by the way, going to jail for the testimony of Jesus Christ is not a closed door. <laughs> 
We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That's not a closed door. That's an open door of opportunity. And Paul and Silas use it through song, through prayer. In the prison, they uh, have a powerful ministry. Uh, so powerful that when the prison doors are opened by an earthquake, not only do Paul and Barnabas stay put, but so does every other prisoner in the place. And the sleeping guard awakes to find them all sitting there, being good prisoners and staying where they're supposed to be even though all the doors are open and all the shackles have broken loose. None of them leave. And the guard's response is, what do I need to do to be saved? And Paul's response is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Acts 16.31 And your household. And that's what we're going to address a little bit today. We need to uh, see this work of God and the gospel and how it works in the hearts of men and how they are confronted and are they given a true choice. You see, these very precious passages of these individuals coming to know Christ and stretching back to Cornelius and stretching forward into Corinth, um, we are going to have a, a couple of terminologies that have been hijacked by some uh, and, and has brought disaster on the church. Because they have taught principles that are injurious to the process of salvation. And uh, it is time for us really to take a few minutes to study what we don't believe. Uh, I prefer most of the time to say, here's what we do believe. And I try to focus my attention on that. Uh, But occasionally you need to take some time in order to uh, delineate a belief system to also share what you don't believe. But this does not mean that, as other men have taught it and are teaching it. Uh, and we are going to be looking at that uh, from two different directions because of the, I believe, abuse of the passage we've been studying in Acts 16. It really comes down to a, a couple of phrases, and we want to look at those phrases very quickly. If you'll turn to Bibles to Acts 16. Uh, the first phrase I want to address that's probably the easier one of the two is actually secondary. Acts chapter 16, we find verse 15, I'm sorry, in verse, yes, verse 15. Uh, let's back on verse 14, just give you some uh, context here. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And we can jump forward into the Philippian jailer's conversion. In verse 30, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, so they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. And then, of course, in the passage we read in chapter 18 in in Corinth, we also have another uh, event where it says that this individual and his household received Christ as Savior and Lord, or more specifically, were baptized. And we have seen this once before, and we've touched on it tangentially, that is, on the side, um, but now I want to zero in on this idea that somehow um, one individual's faith is uh, able to save more than just himself. 
that somehow it is an umbrella that covers many individuals. And that is how these passages have been abused, that if this person who is the head of the household is saved, that everyone within that household becomes a believer. And uh, the old adage is, God has children but no grandchildren, is the traditional response to that. That is, that there are there is no uh, familial way to Christ outside of the personal response of faith to Jesus Christ. And this uh, takes us away from a concept of coming to Christ that doesn't require you to take personal responsibility for your sin. And it has been attempted to be enforced in many environments. Probably the most vivid one is in Geneva, Switzerland, under a man named John Calvin. And Calvin was so convinced of this that when he gained the authority not only as the spiritual lead of the community, but also as magistrate and as um, kind of the mayor, um, he basically was judge, jury, and prosecutor. He was the, the court side and the king side and the priest side all wrapped up. And uh, he wielded that kind of authority that uh, he instituted this philosophy upon the people. Uh, mandated all of that everyone in Geneva had to go and participate in the Lord's table, communion, uh, taking the bread and the, of the wine, that he implemented that, uh, that to fail to do so would get you imprisoned immediately. And his uh, declaration was that because everyone in Geneva was a believer, everyone born in Geneva must also be among the elect. And they were deemed so from birth. Well, the experiment, if you will, was a, a complete disaster. Uh, it ended up being used to capture some of his uh, theological enemies because everyone had to go to uh, participate in the Lord's Communion, and that's where he ended up uh, arresting people. Um, by the way, under, that, under his uh, reign there, um, children that were disobedient or deemed rebellious were stoned to death. That kind of resolved that issue very quickly. Um, and that kind of imposed righteousness and imposed Christianity um, brought forth this kind of universalism within a limited election. And you might say, how do those two go along? I thought Calvin said that Christ only died for the elect, which he did. Um, and yet he held to this universalism that uh, everyone in Geneva was a believer. And as soon as you're born, because you're born within a family of believers, you must therefore be a believer. And we might write this off. But the frightening thing is that in our society today, there's still this attitude that is carried forward. That we still still very prevalent um, today. Uh, that I'm a Christian because even though our president says otherwise, this is, we're, this is a Christian country. Our president has rightly declared that we are not a Christian country, and I thank him for that declaration. Many people condemn him for that. But he actually spoke the truth on that occasion. And, uh, and so, well, I'm American, so of course I'm a Christian. But even worse, well, I'm a member of this family, and we are this. And they can quote any Christian faith, um, from Catholicism to uh, we're all Baptists. And I've had people tell us, oh yeah, we're all Baptists in my family. And uh, 
And I just look at him and I say, really? By birth or by choice? And so even in the, within the radicalism of the Baptist faith, which really is pretty radical out there, um, and the Protestantism of those faiths, or the, the teaching of the Roman Church, we still carry forward in many places the idea that somehow um, there's this coattail way to get into heaven. And that is that, well, my parents are active or am I and, and involved in church in some way and therefore I am because I am their child. And these are the passages that are predominantly used in those instances. The four times in the book of Acts where we say, and their household. That this must certainly mean there were certainly infants in that household. There were certainly young children. There were certainly people who had their own ideas. And yet once the principal member of the household was saved, everyone in the household received Christ as their state or were immediately deemed a Christian uh, whether or not they made a profession of faith themselves. And again, uh, what they've done is they've taken a little phrase in God's word and ignored everything around it. And in our study throughout Acts, we have made two things very clear, I hope. Number one is that Acts is a record of what occurred and not fundamentally a theological workbook. Now, can we see theology applied here? Yes. Do we go there to derive theology? Not completely. But it does conform itself entirely with good theology. Secondly, what we have found um, is a consistency within the total message. We pull out verses because we um, are a little ADD. I think we just, we have been convinced by media that you can say important things in a matter of so many characters. And uh, that's nothing new, by the way. <laughs> okay? I grew up in uh, children's programs, and we have a children's program here that we memorized verses. And that's great. And, and I don't know, we can list off all we memorized this many hundred verses. And, and one of them was Acts 16.31, um, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll be saved, and your household. Um, so that was one of them. John 3.16, many, many, many others. The problem is that we don't often know the context of that one verse that we know. That is, we don't know what is the, the flavor and what is the argument that it is being uh, addressing in the midst of popping out to us. Oh, I know this verse. And suddenly we see the, the quality of it within the context and when we take this phrase, and their household, out of its context, we can certainly come to this confused and, and damaging position that somehow my kids have got this easy road into heaven because they're mine. And I can perform these religious rituals on them um, and then... Infant baptism is, was not just the, the Roman church practice. It was also most of the Reformed churches, all of them, for most of the way, uh, practiced it, paedo-baptism. And so we, we find them engaging this to identify these children. Some because of some poor theology about sin and, and, and the absolution. Others because of 
this wrong notion of this one phrase and their household. Three words in English. So we find a need to look again at the context. And uh, what we find is we're going to first go back to Cornelius. And what we discover about Cornelius back in Acts, uh, chapter 10 is the account there of it. And uh, we're going to see this family who it says his whole household was baptized. His whole household responded. But what we fail to recognize most of the time is that his whole household had been engaged in his uh, desire to seek after God. And that's how he was introduced to us at the beginning of chapter 10. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment. This is a Roman commander who was in charge of a regiment. He was a devout man, it says in verse 2, and one who feared God... And now we have a great phrase we need to talk about a little bit, with all his household. Now this is not describing them after they had received Christ, after they had heard the message of the resurrected Lord. This is before they had received it. They hadn't really even heard of Jesus. He just feared God. And he, with all his household, they wanted to um, serve whoever he was. And they wanted to know the true God. And all of his household joined with him in desiring after that knowledge, that fear of the Lord. That rather than it being him doing it on their behalf, we find that they are all engaged in this. And in fact, we're going to find some of his servants involved in the process of getting him this truth. And so God responds to their fear of him and their attempt to do good works by saying, well, that's not enough, that's really not going to get you saved, but because you fear me, because you are trying to figure it all out, I'm going to make sure to get you and your household the message. And he gives him a dream that he's supposed to send someone to uh, Simon the Tanner and bring him to you. And he will tell you the truth. And of course, that person is Peter. And Peter arrives on the scene, also having received a vision from God, saying, don't you call Gentiles unworthy? No one, this is critical, no one is unworthy of the gospel. No one. That's the second half of tonight's message. And so you go to them with them, and so he goes with them, and, and he arrives, and he starts to preach to them the gospel. And, uh, and I love how the sermon got interrupted. Don't you love interrupted sermons? None of you do, because none of you interrupt my sermons. You, you let me preach till like 1230 sometimes, which is just ridiculous. No, I have not preached at 1230. The visitors are getting nervous. Oh, man, how long are we here for? No. They're going to interrupt the service. Well, technically, they're not going to interrupt the service. God's going to interrupt the message. But let's see at what point they interrupt it. So Peter is preaching to him in chapter 10. And uh, we get to, let's jump in in verse 39. And he says, And we are witnesses of all thing, the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him, God, raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses, chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. 
while Peter was still speaking these words. Here's the interruption. Isn't it great where the interruption comes? It doesn't come until Peter rehearses that Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he and you must believe in him to have the removal of your sins. That if you want to have your sins gone, you need to believe in this one who died, buried, and rose again. Once he got to the resurrection again, it's decision time. When you hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, recognize it as a time of decision, of a choice. And the evidence is, in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Now, we know who was gathered there, because Cornelius said, this is the guy that God told me to go get. Here he is. They actually tried to worship Peter, and Peter said, don't do that, I'm just a man. And so he gathers his whole household around, and it says that they all heard. And the evidence is that they responded, that they, they... agreed with what they heard. They consented to what they heard. They submitted to what they heard. They believed. And as he was speaking, no special prayers being made, no altar call (laughs) being made. As he was preaching, they believed, and immediately the Holy Spirit started working in their lives. But I want you to notice that everyone who received the Holy Spirit heard the message. And the evidence of their faith in that message is found in God coming upon them. And it says in verse 45, And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter said, Can anyone forbid water that these should be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So yes, Cornelius and his household But the household also heard the whole message. They responded by faith believing. And we do not find uh, any evidence here that this included infants. Infants cannot technically hear the message. They can certainly hear the sounds, but they're not going to understand the message. The implication here is that we're dealing with individuals, perhaps some of them fairly young, and you can understand the message of the gospel at a pretty young age. Four and five-year-olds can make confessions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can understand that. And some of you have that testimony. That's when you receive Christ as your Savior. Some of us, like me, are a little more stubborn. It takes till we're 12. But uh, uh, we can see fairly young individuals receiving Christ as Savior. But they have to understand the message. They heard the message and responded, and these are the ones who received the Holy Spirit, and these are the ones who were baptized. We come to Lydia, and similarly, we find in chapter 16 another reference to the fact that, um, yes, it was involved her household, um, but that they heard she and her household were baptized, and the evidence was there that that. They had listened to it, and specifically, the, the best example, I think, is the Philippian jailer that we have studied several weeks ago. And again, verse 32 of chapter 16 says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So what do they have in common? Not just because they are physically related to the jailer, but rather because they all heard 
that message. They all heard the words of life. They all heard this message of the one who had died, was buried, and rose again. And now they have an opportunity to trust in him just as their husband, father, master, friend trusted in him. They have a similar opportunity. And they responded and they, and they accepted that opportunity. And we find that all who were in his house heard the word of the Lord. We find again that in verse 33, all, he and all his family were baptized. Why? Verse 34. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. They all believed in God. This is the condition of having a relationship with God is that you believe in Him. You make that your own choice, not based upon someone else's choice. I cannot drag you into heaven uh, simply because I want it for you more than you want it for yourself. Um, And so I I can perform religious rituals on you uh, till the world's end and it will afford you no righteousness. It will afford you no position before God in heaven. It is necessary that each one hear the message of a resurrected Savior and respond, either to accept or reject Him. That each one must come to that choice in their life. And the evidence resoundingly in these passages is not pointing to infants being baptized, but rather to those who heard and accepted it being baptized. That's who was involved in this process of coming to Christ. And then again, of course, the fourth example we read earlier in uh, chapter 18. In, uh, it says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And we keep ha- having this, this theme repeated by Luke's record of the accounts that here's how it happens. Here's how you become a follower of Jesus Christ. You hear it. You hear this message. You hear this story, this account of Jesus and the one who was resurrected to conquer sin and death. Then you believe it. Then you're baptized. That is, that you're making a public statement that I am a follower of this way, of this man. That's what baptism is. It's a public declaration. It does not in itself wash away any sins or bring one into uh, closer proximity to heaven spiritually or physically. It is an act of obedience of declaring to other people that when Jesus died, he died for me. When he was buried, he was buried for me. And when he rose again, he raised again for me. I've accepted it. And so we do not impose, in fact, you cannot impose Christianity on anyone against their will. And it's foolish just to think that we can do so. Now, do the children within Christian homes have... uh, Increased access. They should. Absolutely. They should have increased access to the truth. Do they have increased opportunities to receive Christ? Absolutely. They should. 
I would also contend with you they also have increased exposure to hypocrisy. If you're not living it and just talking it, your kids know. And it can embitter their hearts to the faith no matter how many services you bring them to. And so yes, our children have some benefits of being in a Christian home, but that does not equal the fact that they will come to know Christ as their Savior as much as we want it for them and that they will serve Him with their lives and submit their will to His will. It does not equal this. And thus the statement, God has no grandchildren. They're all first-generation believers. They're all come to Christ by hearing the message of a risen Savior, of believing it in their heart, and making that public testimony of that fact. And this Paul reiterates in Romans. Does he not? Romans 10. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless he's been sent? And Paul, he recognized, I was sent out to preach the gospel and I was sent out that people could hear it so that having heard it, they have an opportunity to believe it. To believe it now, they can serve him in it. And so this correlates with everything we have everywhere else in the Bible, that it is requisite that you hear the word, that you believe the word before you uh, are can make the public testimony that I am a believer. And it is horrific how many might be in hell today because they were deceived into thinking they were right with God because mom or dad were. Or because this ritualistic religious act was done to them without even their permission. It's horrific. And that's why we are not like the Muslims. We do not go out with swords and weapons and say convert to Christ or else. But rather we confront in a loving manner and say this is the only way you can accept or reject it. It doesn't change the facts of it. It's the only way of salvation. And we go out there with a loving testimony willing not to kill for that but willing to die for that statement. So we do not impose this faith on anyone, and in fact my contention is that neither does God. When we try to override the will of those that we care deeply about, usually it's our family members, but we try to override their will and make them Christian because we want them to be Christian like us, um, we do something in their life that even God himself doesn't do. God does not, in the process of salvation, override the will of men. He makes it your choice. Here is the fact. He has loved you. He has sent His Son to die for you. He has risen again to conquer death and sin on your behalf. And now it is for you to accept or reject it. Not to please mom, not to please dad, not to please society, but to recognize that you must submit yourself to the one true and living God. That this is the only way of salvation. This is our message. And it is intact. And and 
because part of the aspect of what God has put into man is the authority to make choices. And, he, and that is evident from the Garden of Eden on, is that unlike any other creatures that, that God created, He dis, gave us this responsibility, this right. And I use that word very sparingly. You in our church know that. I, I'm very careful if I ever use the term, this is your right. I think a lot of what we call rights in our country aren't at all. I don't find them in God's word anywhere, including happiness or the pursuit that of or life or liberty. Sorry, I don't find them in God's word. It's not a right that you can say God gave you. But he did give you the right to choose. And again, we are confronted within Christian circles of those who would say that that's not true. And again, they will use passages like this, and we see in the conversion of Lydia a description saying that God opened her heart to accept or to heed that, that she heard. And they have made much of this and a couple of other passages to say, well, it is necessary for God to save you before you can accept salvation. And it is simply... Error because it is not in conformity with the balance of Scripture. We find again and again the statement of God that it is His purposes, it is His will, it is His desire, it is His intention that all men everywhere come to repentance. That we all have an opportunity to be confronted with this message and that we must choose. I find it interesting that we are willing to take another little phrase that God, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul and ignore all the other descriptions of salvation and the process of it that are given in Acts and in other passages. Where we find Paul confronting, we're going to see it next week when we get to Mars Hill, where we see Paul willing to engage everyone he recognized that there, I need to engage everyone. And if there's any place where this is borne out most vividly, it's in Corinth in chapter 18, um, where they come and look at what he does. Again, he goes to the, te- the synagogue, because there is a synagogue, in verse 4 of chapter 18. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And then there's this wonderful word, and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. That is, there were proselytes. There were, there were converts to Judaism among the synagogue uh, tenders that were born Greek. Uh, remember, we're in Greece, right? Corinth, Athens, Thessalonica. You can go to those places still today. They're in the country called Greece. Okay, it's still there. And he persuaded them. Persuasion involves the idea that I am seeking to open your heart up and look at, at um, the uh, uh, statement here. It says, Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia. Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And look at verse 6. Now, we just got done in verse 4 saying that he persuaded both Jews and Greeks in the synagogue. Sabbath after Sabbath. That's Saturday after Saturday. He was there multiple weeks seeing many people being persuaded of the truth that he was speaking. And then we come to verse 6. It says, But when they opposed him and blasphemed. 
how can these two be going on? And so we find that the Jews, within which multiple weeks in a row, they have heard of Christ. And they have been persuaded of the gospel. Um, that they come to a point, and now the Jews, by and large, and we know that it's an overwhelming majority because of Paul's response. His response to them says, fine, you don't want this. I'll take it to people who do want it. So here they are persuaded, and you can certainly do that throughout a study of the Old Testament, of what it is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. It is not the blood of bulls and goats. Um, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. We have the, the, re, the repeated requirement. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews goes through all of the weaknesses of the law and why it was not the solution, but only pointed to the solution, which is trust in one deliverer that Isaiah described as a suffering servant, the one who would be slain, not for his own sin, but for the iniquity of others. So they heard that they were persuaded, but then they opposed him and even blasphemed against it. And his contention was, if that's the way you feel, I won't be back. Your choice. I'll go to the Gentiles who may or may Greek, Roman, whatever. I'm going to leave the synagogue and I'm going to go out here. And again and again and again, we see Paul confronting people with this choice. And the idea that somehow God will only open the hearts of some and he will purposely close the hearts of others is simply uh, not in Scripture. We find, rather, that God, by John's account, will seek to convict the world by his Holy Spirit. And we often think of conviction as a negative thing. I feel bad about being bad. Um, That's guilt. Conviction as a recognition that you need to do something about it. Feeling bad is guilt. Conviction is, I need to resolve this. And I'm, I can make you feel guilty. And we probably should more often than we do. We can make each other feel guilty because we can point to sin and call it sin. And that forms guilt in our life because we know it's sin. But conviction says, I need to deal with this. And I can deal with it on my own and try to either rationalize it away as not sin. I can try to drink until I forget that it is sin. I can do all these other things trying to deal with sin. But fundamentally, true conviction of the Holy Spirit is uh, not only that I know I am a sinner, but that I know I need to resolve it. Because the other two things that God convicts you of, according to John, uh, according to Jesus recorded in John, um, convicts you of sin, but he also convicts you of righteousness. God's righteousness. See, making you feel guilty as a sinner really isn't enough. Most of us all carry some guilt in our life. That doesn't mean we want to do anything about it. And it doesn't mean that we realize that there's someone righteous who's our judge that we're going to have to answer to. So the other thing that the Holy Spirit convicts you of or convinces you of is that there is a righteous judge. And then the third thing is that there is, so not only of sin or righteousness, but of judgment, that there is a time you will have to take an accounting before that righteous judge. There is a trial date set up for you. And so, resolve this before that date. And so, that, that work of the Spirit isn't limited to some, but limited to all. He convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. 
that we are called to take the gospel to every creature in Mark. Uh, again and again and again, we have these, these encompassing statements within God's word that God's intention and desire is that all would receive Christ as a Savior. And our responsibility is to make sure they at least have heard the message because they can't believe until they have heard. And I think it's a powerful fact that it says that, they, that what God did was, was uh, open the heart. And by the way, that's the exact same phrase that's used by Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Remember, he has a conversation with a couple of guys and shares with them all the scriptures and they're going, hmm. And then he says that he opened their hearts. They open their minds. That's the same phrase used to understand the scriptures. That there's an understanding involved here. That so this gal, by the Spirit's work, that I would contend is available to all, but it's a responsive work. That is, that it is not going to persist. Romans tells us that if we reject it, if we, if we fight against it, that eventually it will simply stop. And Romans tells us that at some point, God will just turn you over to your sin and stop trying. That doesn't mean that he has determined you to be reprobate. No. He has left you to your choice to be reprobate. That when we come to that point where we continue to resist and continue to resist, continue to resist, that he will just simply stop that work. And so it is not forever, but it is for everyone. That God will convict. And that when we come to that point of rejection, that um, there's a settledness to it at one point. But that settledness isn't here today. I want to share with you that. Um, and it's not here in your life today because you're here today. I don't know why you're here today. I don't know what brought you here. I have an inkling for some of you that I know well. Some of you don't know well very well at all. Your guests here today, uh, of what brought you here. But the fact that you came here for whatever pressure or reason um, that brought you here, you were willing to come. And that alone is sufficient for the Holy Spirit to do His work of convicting you of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, that the work of God might be perfected in you through your hearing this message and believing it and receiving Christ as Savior and Lord. That opportunity is for you today. And it is your choice that no one can impose upon you and neither can anyone really take it away from you except for you yourself. You can choose to simply reject Christ. Reject that message and all the demands of it or you can receive it. And the Holy Spirit is responsive. That is that when we are more willing to listen, He is more willing to open us. He's more willing to explain to us. He's more willing to work in us. And, and coming to Christ, uh, for some people, it's a dramatic single event. <laughs> right? We hear their testimonies think, dramatic single event. Um, but that's really pretty rare, honestly. Most of us come to Christ in a process. And I want to share with you, out of our study of Acts, we've seen a man that came to know Christ that all of us would have given up on. Um, he was attacking Christians, hunting them down, and murdering them. His name was Saul. 
And you might say, well, Saul came to know Christ in a dramatic single event. No, he didn't. What did Christ tell him on the road to Damascus? He says, isn't it hard for you to kick against the pricks? What does that mean? You have heard the gospel over and over again, and you keep kicking at it, but it keeps poking you, and you, uh, isn't it about time you stopped kicking back and just recognized that you need to accept this message? God blinds him with his eyes to show him how blind he is spiritually. And then he heads to Damascus and encounters one more person to tell him the truth, to tell him the gospel, so he could hear it, believe it, and be baptized. So even for Paul, it was a process that took him from hearing the testimony of a guy named Stephen as he was being stoned and all the other pokes that God gave him, all the other convicting work. And, and, and he, was not, <laughs> he was not endearing to those. They were annoying to him. And maybe you're here today and my message is annoying to you. Well, that's your choice. You can keep kicking against the truth of God's word, but it's not going to change. The fact that God's still poking you tells me that you've gotten, gotten to the place of Romans where he has left you to your sin. He's still inviting you to choose. And the question maybe is, are you just, isn't it, isn't it about time you get tired of not going where God wants you to go? Of believing what God wants you to believe? responding to the Spirit's work of convicting by repentance. It says, Romans tells us the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Repentance, the conviction work of the Holy Spirit isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because its goal is your deliverance, your salvation. But that choice is yours. And it has been preserved by God that God himself cannot force you into his kingdom, will not force you into his kingdom, it is silly for any man to think that he can do that or any parent to think they can do that for their children or for an entire people group. It's amazing to see the history of the Americas, how we come in and line up the quote-unquote heathens to baptize them without ever giving them the hearing of the gospel and abrogating their right to choose. Shame on us that is our approach to the gospel. Rather, Paul says, I will bring it into the hearing that some might believe. But whether they believe or reject, I will give it to them. And he does this over and over again throughout the book of Acts. We find him again and again, and we're going to see it in a couple of weeks when we get back on track in chapter 17 of him using persuasion of reasoning with them, to persuade them, follow after Christ. You choose. So we have a, a bridge into the message of the resurrection. The message of the resurrection is, is it's phenomenal. It's history-changing. But more importantly, it represents a choice. Your choice. You can mock at it. Others have done. You could say, I'll think about it, which could have disastrous results. But God will bear with that. Or you can believe. What you cannot do 
this claim that you didn't know and say it's not my fault it is your fault if you've heard the word and not believed you are responsible because it's your choice our invitation to you this day as each day is that you would receive him as Savior and Lord that you would be persuaded that you've reasoned as well as received the conviction of the Spirit of God this needs to be resolved in your life by trusting in the one, the only one, who is risen, raised from the dead to eternal life. Of this, with the power of God over sin and death. We invite you to do that even today, before you even leave this place. But certainly throughout this week, we challenge you to consider this choice that is yours, that you must make yourself. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the power of this message of our Savior who has come, dwelt among us, leaving heaven's glory. And lived among us sinners yet without sin himself. Crucified and buried And then gloriously resurrected by the power of the Father. And Lord, we thank you for that message of deliverance and hope and that sureness of that one way to remove sin. And Lord, we pray that you might work in each of our hearts. You know what we're depending upon. Some here may be depending upon their families, religious beliefs or rituals that were done upon them even before they were able to give consent. Others may believe and trust in their own righteousness which you describe as filthy rags. But Lord, you know what each one trusts in this hour. I pray that you might continue your work of convicting where it is necessary, where they trust in anything but that one who was raised from the dead, whom we celebrate this week and each week. Lord, we thank you that you have put within us the authority to decide. We know that with that authority comes responsibility, that we must be held accountable for our choice. So I pray you might work in our hearts and lives this hour, that we might choose you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.